appreciate the presence of each one this evening. Good to be here and be able to worship together both this morning and tonight. Sing together and pray together and spend a little bit of time encouraging each other. I appreciate the reading tonight, uh, Daniel, uh, uh, David and his successful reign. I noticed especially that verse 16 says, David did just as God commanded him. And that's always an encouraging thought. David did just as God commanded him. We read that about Moses in Exodus chapter 40. Moses built the tabernacle according to all that God had commanded him. And uh, we studied that some this morning as well. Jesus says, I always do what the Lord, my Father, instructs me to do. And so that's what we want to do. We want to do what the Lord commands us. We want to do all that the Lord commands us. Uh, We want to do it all without leaving any of it out, without adding to it or detracting from it, of course. But we want to do what the Lord commands. And appreciate everybody being here tonight and uh, being reminded, reminding each other of that objective. Well, it doesn't take a Solomon to see as you drive along the highway that there are literally dozens of different kinds of churches In our community, in our state, in our country, throughout the world, maybe even hundreds of different kinds of churches. Not just different churches, but different kinds of churches. Now, as you look at these, maybe more closely, you'll see that there are some clear differences between some of them. If you were to go, for example, to a service at a Roman Catholic church, it would be much different from a service at a United Pentecostal church. And so there are some very clear differences between some of the churches that uh, we are familiar with. Others, however, are distinguished by fine, nuanced variations of doctrine and or practice. And really on a pers- uh, only a person that has a pretty thorough knowledge of the history of that particular kind of church would be able to explain the difference. And so some of these Divisions are over some pretty fine points. I'm sure that the founders of every kind of church believe they had good reasons for breaking away from an existing church. And so things were unsatisfactory in the existing church. And so whoever broke away, I'm sure, believed they they had some uh, very legitimate reasons for doing that. They either wanted to teach something different than was being taught in the existing church, or they wanted to practice something different from what was being done in the existing church. And so, and so they were motivated to break away. Otherwise, they would have just continued where they were. Even though many churches teach and practice many of the same things, each kind of church has its distinctive reasons for existing. And so... Among churches, you'll find a lot of things taught the same. A lot of practices are the same. But every kind of church would say, in the history of our church, we had this reason for breaking away or that reason for breaking away. And this is the reason that we exist. This is what we're trying to accomplish by our existence. Well, that raises a question, doesn't it? Why do we exist? Well, what are we trying to accomplish? And when I ask that question, really all I'm thinking about is this church right here, this local church. Well, what are we trying to accomplish? Why why do we exist? You know, if it's true that every kind of church out there exists for a reason, and at least when they began, they thought these were legitimate reasons, that raises a question, why why do we exist? Are we just a group of people who enjoy each other's company? 
And so we thought, well, let's just start a church. Or are there reasons other than that? So what I want to try to do tonight is talk about this a little bit. What, what, why, why do we exist? What are we trying to accomplish? What's our distinctive call? What are we calling people to do? What's our distinctive purpose? We're going to start by looking at the establishment of the church in the New Testament, then we'll talk about some other things along the way. So Matthew chapter 16 is our first passage. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus is with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and He asked them, Who do men say that I am? And you remember the response. Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And that's an interesting statement. Upon this rock, I think Jesus is referring to the confession that Jesus made. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that solid foundation, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. You remember in the book of Acts, as the disciples go out and preach the gospel, they preach Christ. They preach Christ, the Son of God. They preach Jesus, Lord and Christ. And so that's the foundation upon which Jesus built His church. The word church, as you may know, is from the Greek word ekklesia, or it's a translation of the Greek word ekklesia. It simply refers to an assembly or a group of people. It's not inherently religious. It's used outside the Bible in Greek literature in a non-religious way. In fact, even in the Bible it's used in a non-religious way. You remember the, the, the people that came together in the city of Ephesus and, and uh, kind of a riot breaks out and, uh, over the teaching of Paul and they begin to shout, Great is the goddess Diana. You remember that? Well, that big crowd is referred to as an ecclesia. It's not, it's not a religious gathering. It's just a, a group of people, a gathering of people. And on that particular occasion, the remark by Lucas, some of them didn't even know why they were there. And so it's just an assembly. It's just a, a group of people gathered uh, together. The New Testament, however, uses it to refer to a particular group of people, the, the group of people that belong to Christ. In fact, over a hundred times in the New Testament we find this word ecclesia. I think what the New Testament writers are doing is they're drawing upon the Old Testament usage of the word. And so the background of the word, as is used in the New Testament, I think is found back in the Old Testament. Let me just let me take a minute to try to explain a few things. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, originally written in, in Hebrew. The, the Jews, of course, also called Hebrews. And so it makes sense that the Old Testament, their scriptures, would have been written in Hebrew. But as Jews left Palestine, as they left Jerusalem and Judea, and lived out in other remote parts of the world, uh, parts of the world where Hebrew was not spoken, they began to speak the languages of the people where, where they lived. Now at that particular time, Greek was a universal language. And so what the Hebrews decided to do was translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek 
so that it could be read wherever these people lived. And so as fewer and fewer Jews spoke their native tongue Hebrew, more of them spoke Greek, there is a need for a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That's called the Septuagint. That uh, Greek translation is called the Septuagint. In fact, that's the, that, that's the scriptures that is quoted most of the time by New Testament writers. They usually quote from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so when we say that the word ekklesia is found in the Old Testament, what we mean is it's found in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, uh, a, a text that the New Testament writers themselves quote from. Let me give you a couple of examples where this is found. In Ezra chapter 2, book of Ezra chapter 2, you remember Ezra leads some people out of Babylonian captivity. And chapter 2 and verse 1, these are the people of the provinces who came up out of captivity of the exiles when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried them away. That's Ezra chapter 2 and verse 1. But then in verse 64, the whole assembly, that's the word ecclesia, the whole ecclesia numbered 42,360. And so what I think the New Testament, and it's, that, that word is found multiple times, many times in the Old Testament. That's just one example. And so what the New Testament writers are doing when, or when Jesus, what Jesus is doing when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, is he says, now you're used to thinking of Israel as the ecclesia of God. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, there are several, in that particular book, book of Deuteronomy, there are several places where the word ecclesia is found in the Septuagint, where Moses is referring back to the gathering of Israel together at Sinai, and he calls it the day of assembly, the day of the ecclesia. That's what the Septuagint would say. And so what Jesus is saying is, I know you're accustomed to thinking of Israel as the ecclesia of God. But I tell you what, I'm going to build my ecclesia. And it's going to be different from national Israel. Now that's a startling statement, isn't it? <laughs> to make to people like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who are accustomed to thinking of Israel as the assembly of God or the congregation of God or the group of people who especially belong to God. And Jesus come along and say, now I know you're used to thinking of Israel that way, but I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to build my church. So the church that would be established by the authority of Jesus, it would be established in the name of Jesus, it would be composed of disciples of Jesus. It would follow the teaching of Jesus. It would seek to accomplish the purpose given to it by Jesus. And so that's the church that Jesus is going to build. Built by the authority of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, composed of the disciples of Jesus, follow the teaching of Jesus, would seek to accomplish the purpose given to it by Jesus. Simply called the church of Jesus Christ, right? And so Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. That would be the church of Jesus Christ. And that church is established. Not only was it anticipated by Jesus, but at the end of the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and, and I suppose John has his own version of this, Jesus commissions his apostles to go out and, 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so after Jesus dies and is buried, he's raised from the dead, he commissions his disciples, the apostles, to go out and make other disciples by baptizing them in his name. And they begin to do this on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Jesus is preached. We have a record of Peter's sermon, focuses especially on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He encourages the people on that day to know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, he says, whom you crucified. They call out, what shall we do? He answers them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who received the word were baptized. And so the beginning of the church is recorded for us here in Acts chapter 2. And so as Jesus commissions them to go and make disciples, they in fact do that. They go make disciples by preaching in the name of Christ. The people who receive it are baptized in the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 2 in verse 47, King James Version says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You might read, uh, your version might read like my version does, added uh, to them or added together those who are being saved. Well, who is them? Who is the together? Those who are together. What's the church, isn't it? And from that point on, we begin reading about the church. And so in Acts chapter 5 and verse 11, after Peter deals with Ananias and Sapphira, great fear came over the whole church. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. On that day, a great persecution began against the, the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judah and Samaria, except the apostles. And they went out preaching the word. In verse 3 of Acts chapter 8, Saul began ravaging the church. And so the gospel is being preached. Disciples are being made. As disciples are made, the Lord is adding those disciples to His people, to the church of Jesus Christ. Somebody asked one time, can, can you be a disciple of Jesus without being a member of the church? And their response was, no, not fast enough. <laughs> it's a pretty clever way of saying it. When you become a disciple, the Lord adds you to His group of people, to His church. And so the disciples began, the apostles began preaching this message in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But then they and others uh, continue to preach the gospel, and the church continues to grow. Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men became, came to be about 5,000. And so we go from 3,000 on Pentecost, now the number of men is about 5,000. And after that, we stop reading about numbers. We stop reading numbers. And we just read statements like, Now at the time when the disciples were increasing, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And so, obviously, as the number of disciples increases, the church is growing. That's what the church is. It's the disciples of Jesus. It's those who have come to believe in Christ and repented of their sins, they've been baptized in the name of Jesus, they become disciples. That's what the church is. Look at Acts chapter 11. 
Next chapter 11 and verse 26, we kind of have some of these terms that I've been using all together in one place, and it might serve as a good illustration of the point I'm trying to make. Acts 11, verse 20, 26. We'll look at verse 25. Uh, Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. He's going to bring him back to Antioch. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for an entire year. They met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so they, they met with the church. The disciples were called Christians. So you see how those three terms all relate really to the same group of people. The church is the disciples. The disciples are Christians. And so as a person becomes a disciple, a sincere, penitent believer, baptized in the name of Christ, then he is a member of the church. That, that's what the church is. Well, the church continues to grow. The apostles were to take the message into the entire world. You see that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. There are to be witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. And others join with them in preaching the gospel. And, and they're very successful. As we saw a moment ago, the number of disciples continues to, to grow and increase. And so it's not long before they go outside of Jerusalem and Judea. They go to Samaria with Philip. We find disciples in Antioch. We saw that in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. And then we see disciples made in lots of other places as well. And then we find disciples in specific locations banding together, joining together to worship together, mutual encouragement in the Lord, and to do the Lord's work. And these, of course, are local churches. And so you can think about the church as all the disciples all over the world, that's the church of Jesus Christ. But then in a specific location, you find groups of disciples banding together, joining together, organizing themselves as a unit to worship together and to work together. And so we read about the church at Antioch. And so those are disciples in Antioch, disciples of Christ, banding together in a local organization to worship together, to work together, and so forth. We read about the church at Corinth and the church at Ephesus and lots of other places. Now, the point I want to make it here is that these disciples in these local churches don't have a religious identity other than disciple. Now, that's all they are. They don't have an additional religious identity. They don't wear an additional name, for example. Uh, they're simply disciples of Jesus. And so they're disciples of Jesus when they are sincerely penitent of their sins and they believe in Christ and they're baptized. They're disciples and then they meet together with others who have done exactly the same thing as disciples and they form a local church. They don't become something other than what they've been already. And so a church in the New Testament may refer to all sincere penitent baptized believers throughout the world known only to God or a local group of disciples who band together as one body for work and worship. Now that's a simple concept, isn't it? There's not anything really difficult about that, I don't think. Uh, it's a very simple model. It's, it's, we might observe that the local churches we've talked about, 
they're not, they're not denominations. That doesn't come along for a long time later. They're simply Christians, simply disciples. They band together with others who are simply disciples to work together and to worship. Also known as the body of Christ, the family of God, among other things. Well, let's think about some features of these New Testament churches. Well, what were they like? What, what were their features? Well, these local churches were governed by men who served as elders or presbyters or overseers. Those are the words that we find in Scripture to refer to these men. So in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And so they appointed Paul and his companions, appointed elders in every church. The word elder is just another form of the word presbyter. And they are also called overseers, whose work is to pastor the flock or shepherd the flock. Now, we draw that from Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Peter, uh, Paul here is meeting with the elders from the church at Ephesus. And he says, Be on your guard for yourselves, or be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so if you go back to verse 17, you'll see that he's meeting with the elders from the church at Ephesus, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. And he tells these elders, you shepherd the church or pastor the church. You act toward this local group of people in the same way a shepherd would act toward the sheep in his flock. We might also add that the oversight of these men did not go beyond the local church, that local group of believers. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, these elders are told to shepherd the flock of God among you. And so shepherd the flock of God among you. And so each local congregation had elders appointed to them as they had men that were qualified, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. These men had oversight over that group, took care of them, fed them, protected them, so forth, especially spiritually. Their oversight didn't extend to other groups. The, the sheep in the flock were cared for by men who knew them. They knew the sheep. The sheep knew the elders. So they have that kind of relationship, and the elders oversee the flock. There are also deacons who were appointed to perform works of service for the church. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it's important to note that in the New Testament there was no organizational body that connected local churches together into districts or regions or dioceses or anything like that. And so there wasn't, uh, for example, the Judean uh, region of churches where all these churches are somehow connected to each other under the authority of a, a kind of higher organizational structure. But that, we don't find that in the New Testament. Nor do we find an attempt to have one central government that oversees all the churches except Christ in heaven, who is the head of the church and leads the church through His Word. And so there's not an attempt on earth to organize all the churches under one central government. 
So that's one of the features organized by elders and deacons. The churches met weekly for worship, for the Lord's Supper, and singing, and praying, and teaching, and contributing. You see that? Acts 20 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 14, and 1 Corinthians 16. The churches proclaimed the gospel. They supported preachers. They helped their needy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 and other passages. They taught and practiced what the apostles taught them. Now that's an important point. We saw it already in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. On the day of Pentecost, we find that 3,000 hear the word and they are baptized and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so how do these local churches know what to do? Well, they're following the apostles' doctrine. The apostles are teaching them and, and uh, they put into practice what the apostles tell them to do or teach them to do. Another good passage to illustrate the point is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being Himself the chief cornerstone of, of the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so again, in conclusion of this part, when the church is referred to in the New Testament, it refers to either all disciples throughout the world under the headship of Christ, or a group of disciples in one location joined together for worship and work. Well, it wasn't long before uh, things began to change. And so over a number of years, there were uh, gradual changes that occurred among believers. I'm going to note just a few of those. One bishop began to oversee several local churches. And so one bishop began to oversee maybe churches in a given region or churches in a given city. We've seen that's, that's a digression really from what we find in the New Testament where elders oversaw the flock among them. Another gradual development was that they developed the doctrine of apostolic succession. And so this, this doctrine is that these men, these bishops who oversee uh, several local churches in a given region, they begin to be considered as the successors of the apostles. And so you might remember that when Judas dies, an apostle is chosen to take his place. And so that's sort of the theory. We're simply doing what they did back in Acts chapter 1. But you notice in Acts chapter 12, when James the apostle dies, there is no mechanism to choose a man to succeed him. And so there's really no mechanism in the New Testament to choose successors to the apostles. And to consider a group of men as having the same authority as apostles... Well, that's a change from the New Testament order of things as well. The church at Rome eventually is given preeminence. There are several reasons for that, but the church at Rome is given oversight, given preeminence over all the churches. And so now you've got a centralized government overseeing the church. Now we, we suggested that that's a digression from the biblical model. And the bishop of Rome becomes the chief bishop. He's called the Supreme Pontiff. A pontiff is a bridge. And so he's the supreme bridge between heaven and, and earth. He's called the vicar of Christ, the one who stands in Christ's place in the earth. And so the bishop of Rome, the pope, becomes the chief bishop over the church. The church and state, uh, here, well, I'll get to that one in just a moment. Look at this, the, the church tradition is regarded 
as equal to Scripture. When I say church tradition, what I mean is the consensus of the church fathers. You remember those men like Irenaeus and Tertullian and those men who ancient church fathers writing about biblical subjects? Well, their consensus when they discuss a subject and everybody kind of has the same point of view, that's considered equal to Scripture. And then the decisions of the church councils as well, the council at Nicaea, the council at Ephesus, and so forth. That their, their decisions eventually are considered by many believers to be equal with Scripture. And of course, they're adding to Scripture, aren't they? And then the convergence of church and state. And so the church becomes an object that the state protects and promotes and supports and advances and so forth. Again, not an idea that we find in Scripture. The development of canon law. Canon law is laws established by the church to govern every aspect of one's life. And so there's, can, there's the Scripture, and then there's canon law, where the church takes Scripture and applies it in very specific ways in your life, dictating in very great detail what you are to do in your life. And then a final development is the priesthood and the sacramental system. The priests were a special class of ordained men through whom God's blessings were administered, especially through the sacraments. A sacrament is an action or a ceremony through which God's special blessing is communicated to man. The mere doing of the sacrament brings God's special work of grace to the participant when administered properly. So the priest and the church were essential to one's standing with God. In order to be right with God, you needed to partake of the sacraments that could be only administered by a priest. And so you can see how now the church has gone a long way from a local group of disciples who are banding together to worship together and work. Now it's a worldwide institution essential to one's standing with God. The church sets the, uh, the, the, the conditions for one's standing with God, to initiate or begin standing with God, and to maintain access to God. Here are a few observations. Well, this, this particular situation dominated the religious scene for many years. And as long as a person was right with the church, he was right with God. The church had control over a person's life and his standing with God through the priests and the sacraments. It's a long way from the New Testament pattern for the church. That, that simple pattern that we talked about in the beginning, <laughs> that, that simple model that we talked about, it's, it's a long way from that, isn't it? But I like to say, and it's important to note, I think, that there were always dissenters. Always people who dissented with the official teaching of the church on this matter or that matter. We may not know all the matters with which people dissented, but there were always people who dissented. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Well, this is, in, in, in a nutshell, the development of Catholicism. You've already figured that out. And things continued on this way for quite a long time, but in the year 1054, an important development takes place. There always been tension between the church in the east, represented by Constantinople, 
and the church in the West represented by Rome. There's always some tension, always some conflict, but things eventually reached ahead in 1054, and the church in the East separated from the church in the West. The church in the West became Roman Catholicism, whereas the church in the East came to be known as Eastern Orthodoxy. There are lots of issues involved over, over many years, but the two groups excommunicated each other and, and divided. And the division continues to this day. Each of them retains many rituals and ceremonies and traditions and doctrines that developed after the apostolic age. And so, after the age of the apostles is over, traditions and rituals and ceremonies continue to develop. And, and each of these groups retains quite a lot of those. And things continued this way for quite a long time. But then in the 16th century in Germany, there was a young Roman Catholic priest who became disturbed by the abusive practices he observed in the Roman Catholic Church, and he sought to correct them. Anybody know the priest's name? Martin Luther. It's Martin Luther. And the movement he started became known as the Protestant Reformation. His initial objective was to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Just abuses that he saw in the church, he wanted to fix them and address them and, and reform the church. But eventually, a clean break was made. One of the most important issues involved was the source of authority in religion. Where, does, where, where is the source of authority found? And the Roman Catholic Church said, in the church. The, the, the source of authority is in the church, and specifically in the chief bishop of the church, the pope. But the Protestants said, no, no, the authority in religion rests in Scripture. And so our authority is in Scripture. And so a back to the Bible movement began, and the movement spread rather rapidly. And those who were involved in the movement were called Protestants, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. But eventually, as we might expect, disagreements among the Reformers developed. Many of these groups, Protestants, they produced their own formal documents stating their doctrine, their interpretation of Scripture, the application of Scripture in worship, in government, etc., and these documents become known as creeds or statements of faith. And so what happens is this group develops its creed, and it's, the creed states, this is the way we understand the Scriptures, this is how we're going to govern ourselves, this is the doctrine we're going to teach, this is what we're going to practice and worship, and so forth. And other groups had their own creeds or statements of faith. They adopt religious names for themselves to distinguish themselves from other groups. And they bind themselves together organizationally. And so all congregations are bound together, all congregations bound together under this name are required to teach what the creed says or the statement of faith says. That's what makes them a member of the group. <laughs> if they stray too far from that, they would be expelled from the group. And so now you've got bodies of believers, some call this, some call that, some call something else, some teaching this, some teaching that, some teaching something else, pr different practices among them. 
All local, all local congregations who wish to be included in the larger group must teach and practice what is contained in the formal document. The use of the word denomination to describe a religious group occurred in the 18th century. Though the denominational theory or the denominational model developed about a century earlier. The idea is that the body of believers is divided into different groups, each having its own name, its own doctrine, its own practice. The differences between them are considered non-essential. They're united in the essentials of the faith, commitment to Jesus as the Christ, adherent to certain core doctrines, but everything else is non-essential. Church government is really non-essential. What you believe about uh, whether you're supposed to be organized under elders or some other form of church, that, that's, that's not important. Uh, whether you're baptized by immersion or sprinkling, not, not important. You know, the, those kinds of things are, no, are non-essential. Well, what's essential is the core doctrine, faith in Christ. Now, that raises this question, who's going to decide what's essential and not essential? Now, that's always been a question, isn't it? Who decides that? Who decides what is essential concerning a subject that's addressed in the Word of God? Who's going to decide, well, that's essential, that's not essential? That's, that's a problem with this particular approach. There are other problems that I hope that you can see. So this is where we are today. We have the establishment of the church in the first century under the teaching of the apostles. Over time, you have some developments, some digressions from that simple pattern that we saw. And then a little bit further into history, see a little bit more, a little bit more. And, and this is where we are today. Well, I'm trying to ask, what, what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to get back to this right here. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Now, we're down here in the 21st century somewhere. We're trying to get back to this, in this local church right here at, at Oak Mountain. We're trying to return to that simple New Testament model for the church. That's our, that's our goal, at least one of our goals, here at the church at Oak Mountain. All we want to be is a group of disciples, a group of Christians, who have joined together in a local church for worship and spiritual work, we want to follow the apostles' doctrine and all that we do. We've seen in the early church, that's what they did. We don't, want to, we don't seek to be part of a larger organization beyond the local church. We only strive to be an independent, autonomous local church being directed by the teaching of the apostles through their word. Are we still directed by the apostles today? Yes, through their word. And so we want to do like those early disciples, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And we want to do like Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, build this church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so when we find the New Testament teaching us to do something, either as a group or individuals, our aim is to do it. And when we find New Testament churches involved in a certain practice, our aim is to follow it, to follow their example. And our call is, we want to invite all who will join with us in this effort. Simply disciples of Jesus, penitent believers, baptized in the name of Christ, committing themselves to Christ, 
banding together with others who have made similar commitment to follow the apostles' doctrine. No more, no less. That's what we're trying to do, at least in part. <laughs> and we invite everybody who will to come and join with us in that, in that aim. Our time's out. I appreciate your patience tonight, your, your attention. I hope we've said some things that at least thought-provoking. If you'd like to talk about it further or study the matter further, we certainly want to make ourselves available to do that. But let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together today, to join together in worship, to join our voices together in song, to join our thoughts together in prayer, to join our minds together in the study of your word. We pray, Father, that what we've done today has been pleasing to you. Our, our, our desire, Father, is simply to do what you instruct us to do, to do it sincerely, to do it from the heart, and not to digress from it, either to the right or to the left. And Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes and open our minds so that we can see clearly what that is. We understand, Father, that you've re revealed your will for us in your word, and we're thankful that we have access to it. And we pray, Father, that we will devote ourselves to its study, that we'll study it diligently so that we might understand what the will of the Lord is. Our Father, we pray that you'll be with us, that you'll watch over us, that you'll lead us, that you'll guide us in the way that you would have us to go. And help us, Father, as we learn what you would have us to know, that we'll be diligent in teaching others the same truth of the gospel. We're thankful that Jesus came, that he lived on the earth, that he died on the cross for our sins. We know, Father, if it were not for that wonderful work of grace, that we would be lost and without hope. And so, Father, we're so thankful that He came, that You were willing to send Him, and that we have opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. Help us each day, Father, to walk in the steps of Jesus, to do all that He commands us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.